Good morning, everybody. Want to invite our children to Children's Church? Kathy will meet you at the back. So let's go ahead and open in the word of prayer. Lord, you are indeed holy and all that that means. And so, Lord, as we gather to worship you, as we gather to pray, to sing songs to each other, to encourage each other, above all of this, the banner that reigns over all of this is that you are holy. And the angels in heaven repeat that over and over again. The words cannot exhaust the fullness of your holiness. And so, Lord, thank you that you have chosen us, that you've drawn us to yourself, that you make us your people, even though you are holy. Um, This is a fresh reminder and a a good thing to meditate on. Uh, Lord, we want to lift up uh, prayers for um, our brother in Christ, Daniel Holmquist. Uh, Lord, as he's been finished with the COVID and is now beginning chemotherapy, uh, Lord, we pray for his, um, his strength during this time. And uh, Lord, most importantly, for his sanctification, he is not the kind of person who's going to sit still very long and be happy about it. So uh, Lord, as, as you are um, accomplishing something in his life through, through uh, cancer and through chemotherapy, Lord, we pray that uh, you would be with him as he struggles through what he's got to face. Also for Linda, his wife, and, and uh, the, um, the change this is going to bring into their world. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would accomplish wonderful things through the cancer that you have allowed to come to your servant and that it would be bring um, Calvary Evangelical Free Church closer to you, Daniel and Linda closer to you, their children closer to you, that you would accomplish wonderful things through them. And uh, Father, I just want to also pray for your church in North America. Um, we are in a, a difficult time, and there's a lot of struggles and a lot of fractures happening. Lord, what you've told us is we are to maintain the unity of the Spirit, that people will know that we are your disciples by our love for each other. And so, Lord, as your, your church is, is being stretched and, and um, under great pressure, Lord, I pray that as disciples of Jesus Christ, we would be manifesting love for each other, and uh, the hope of the gospel to the world. Help us to not take our eyes off those things as we wrestle with really seriously important questions. Um, it's not that we're, we're fighting over, um, uh, over minor issues. These are difficulties that we face asking big questions and uh, how your church should behave and how should she respond. So grant us your grace and your peace as we go through these times we ask. And Lord, now as we turn to your word, as we, we come to hear what your apostle Peter has to say to us, Lord, would you open our eyes and our hearts? Holy Spirit, would you illuminate the page? Help us to understand what you're saying here. And most importantly, Lord, would you use it to sanctify us, to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ? And we ask all of these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. This is a true story. There was a man named Captain George Etherington. He was of the 60th Royal Regiment, and he was put in charge of Fort Michilimackinac. That is at the, uh, the very northern tip of Michigan. I'm from Michigan, so I have a map always with me. So Michilimackinac is right up there at the very tip. Uh, the fort was previously, it was a French fort. They had built it, but they had abandoned it. I never found out why they abandoned it. I think it was probably because they really didn't do well in the French-Indian War about that time. Um, so the British had decided that they would take these forts back along the Great Lakes, and so Captain Etherington was put in charge of Fort Michelin-Millimac. And uh, this was an important one because the money that was made through the Great Lakes and the St. Lawrence Seaway was all based on fur, the fur trade. 
And so this fort was a great trading post for fur in the area. So it was, it was fairly important, which is kind of why did the French abandon it? I don't get it. Um, so he had been in charge for about a year. And on June 3rd, 1763, members of the Ojibwa tribe had camped near the fort. And they'd sent word in uh, that they were going to have this, this great tournament. They played a game that we would recognize as, as uh, lacrosse. Um, but they were going to have this great tournament. They were going to play another uh, Indian nation. And they invited the fort to come out and watch because it was going to be such fun. Well, Captain Etherington decided to relax military discipline, uh, drew down the guards. There was minimal guards. Most of the, the troops were out front lounging. It was June. It was a beautiful summer day. Uh, Captain uh, Etherington and his lieutenant um, were standing by the open gate watching this game go. And the Ojibwe were very aggressive in this game. They would just swarm over the opponents. Now, in modern lacrosse, that's played with two teams with 10 people. The native version of what they were playing, there were hundreds of people on the field. They, a team might be 100 people. And so they're running around, they're rushing back and forth, and, and the people are enjoying it. It's a, it's a great game. And at one point, there's a big scrum. Everybody's together fighting over the ball when the ball comes flying out of the scrum and heads over towards the gate and lands by the gate. And so the Ojibwe turn, and they rush towards the gate. Uh, what nobody knew was as they were rushing toward the gate, their women who were lined along, along the wall had tomahawks underneath their robes and in, in uh, blankets, and so they just handed the warriors tomahawks as they ran in. So the Ojibwe stormed into the castle, into the castle, into the fort, and they began to massacre people. They killed, um, they, they killed uh, a military officer, 20 enlisted men, and a British trader. And there was a, an, uh, another person who was watching from a distance, and he described the, the massacre. It was, it was bloody. It was horrible. Once they took the fort, they then captured two British officers, 20 enlisted men, and one British trader. And the two officers that they captured were Captain Etherington and his lieutenant. Um, eventually, Captain Etherington and his lieutenant were turned over to the uh, French in Montreal, where they were held as prisoner of war. And then uh, after a period of time, the French released them. And so Captain Etherington came back into service. Um, the tragic thing about all this is it was extremely, extremely avoidable. The people who lived in the area, the traders, the fur uh, trappers in the area, would come to the fort and tell Captain Etherington, something's going on. The natives are, are planning something. We don't know what's happening, but you need to be aware something is going on. And Etherington just blew it off, didn't want to hear about it. And he actually, there's a report that said he got to the point where he said, the next person who comes and tells me this is going to get arrested and shipped off to Fort Detroit to go to jail. He didn't want to hear it. And so this is, this is what's so tragic about this story is people lost their lives, and it was avoidable. They, he had been warned. And so what we're going to see this morning from Peter is Peter is going to give us a warning. We are engaged in a war, and we need to be prepared for it. So whereas Captain Etherington didn't listen, I want to encourage you this morning to listen to Pastor Etherington so that we can get this straight. This is an important thing that we have to look at. So um, I'm only going to do verses 13 through 16, kind of like we did last week or the last couple of weeks where we read a bigger section. The thought is much bigger here, but we can only handle so much at a time. So I'm going to preach just 13 through 16 this morning. Um, and 13 begins with the wonderful word, therefore. And so what is therefore pointing to? Well, it's pointing to everything we've just heard about. It's, it's reminding us of everything we've just studied. 
Now, Peter is writing to us, and he called us elect exiles or elect sojourners. So what he's writing to us, he's telling us, is you are strangers in this land, and you're traveling through it. But don't lose hope. He wants to fasten our hope as elect exiles so that we can, we can stand firm through all of this. So listen to what he has told us so far. This is the therefore, since this is true now. And we have to get this right. So listen, verse 1, since God has chosen you, you are elect. Verse 2, since God foreknew you, since God has caused you to be born again to a living hope, verse 3. Verse 4, since God is keeping an inheritance for you, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Verse 5, since God is guarding you through faith. Verses 6 and 7, since God is refining your faith by fire so that you will receive praise and glory and honor. And then verses 10 through 13 that we saw last week, since prophets and angels delight to see God's grace in your life. Since these things are true, therefore. The reason I stress that is because who is the prime actor in all of what I've just read? God has done this. God has done this. God has done this. So now when we turn to the very first imperative, the very first command in the epistle, we want to make sure we don't get our focus off of the fact God has done this. So Peter begins with, therefore, since this is true, this then is how it flows. So don't forget, don't take your eyes off of the fact that God has done these things. He has made you an elect exile. He is keeping you. He has got a promise for you in heaven. He has foreknown you from beginning, the beginning of the world. What he is doing is so marvelous, prophets and angels delight to stare into it. Don't miss that as we move into this. Therefore, therefore what? Well, he says a couple of things in a row. Um, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. Set your hope fully. Those are three things. They're all issued as commands. Actually, the, the, the command in this is set your hope. That's the imperative. The prepare your mind and uh, be sober-minded are participles. Now, a little Greek lesson. When you have a participle, it gets its force from the main verb. So in this case, the main verb is an imperative. Do this. Set your hope. And so when we see these two participle, participles hanging off it, what it's saying is this is how you set your hope. These are the steps that you do it. It's the same thing with the Great Commission. The Great Commission, the command in there is make disciples. The participles are go, teach, baptize. They don't fall off. They're, they take that imperatival force. That's what we have to do. How do you make disciples? You go, you teach, you baptize. That's how you make disciples. Same thing happening here. How do you set your hope? On, on this thing that he's going to tell us to set our hope on. You do that by being sober-minded and by be preparing your mind for action. So this, this statement, prepare your mind for action, everybody knows what that is in the, in the um, uh, King James, right? Gird up the loins of your mind. What on earth does that mean? <laughs> well, go ahead and put the picture up. This is what it means to gird up your loins. So... Men in, in the first century and earlier would wear long robes. You can't charge into battle with a long robe on. You're, you'll trip over it. Your feet will be uh, caught up. So they would, they would gird up their loins, gird up their hips. You'd grab the, the uh, skirts and pull them up, grab it, pull it forward, or pull it back around you, tie it in front of you, and basically you turn your skirt into running shorts so that you could enter battle. And so the last picture is this guy's ready for battle. Go ahead and put it back. We don't, <laughs> I just want to get that out of the way. 
so you stop thinking about it. <laughs> the translation that we have, prepare your mind for action, is exactly right. That's exactly what you have to do. What he's telling us is you have got to take up the skirts of your mind and free your legs so your mind can go, but it's your mind that's doing this. He's telling us you have to think well. You have to think. If you let things dangle around your legs and your, your, your thoughts are just kind of mired in whatever's going on, you will not be able to be agile and engage in the fight. In other words, to fix our hope is a fight. It doesn't just happen to us. We've got to be prepared for battle. We've got to have this all cinched up and ready to go. So he says, prepare your minds for action. Get ready. This isn't going to happen for, by itself. The next thing he says is being sober-minded. Now, when he says being sober-minded, the Greek word nifu uh, for sober-minded is kind of like our word for sober, right? What is the root of the idea of being sober? It is not being drunk. But sober and nifu both have a bigger meaning. So we would ask somebody, I would like your sober assessment of this, which doesn't mean stop drinking and tell me what you think. What it means is I want your clear, uh, your, your, your very well articulated, your, your vision for what this subject is. What is your sober assessment of this? And so that's what Peter is telling us here is be sober minded. Don't be drunk minded. Don't have a mind that is clouded with all kinds of things. So what we have to do to be sober-minded is we have to set our mind on clear and, and, and articulated things, not let it be hazed over. Um, that could mean stop drinking. If you have a problem with that, don't do that. But it's, it's not necessarily saying be a teetotaler because there are plenty of teetotalers who are not sober-minded. They, they got all kinds of goofy thoughts. And one of them might be, if you drink alcohol, you're going to hell or something. It's, that's not what's going on here. We have to be sober-minded. So Paul, or P Peter uses the term a couple of more times. In uh, chapter 4, verse 7, he says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Why? For the sake of your prayers. I don't want to preach that sermon yet. But you can see, you've got to think clearly so you're pr for the sake of your prayers. And then chapter 5, verse 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Why? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a lion, seeking whom to devour. You have to have your mind set for action. You have to have it clear, not fogged by everything else that's going on in your life. You've got to be ready for this. Why? Because you have an adversary. And this is not a pussycat. This is a lion. He is going to devour you if you let him. So be prepared. Be ready. Be engaged for action. So the, the point that he's making here, the picture that he's painting for us is, you're not going to drift into this. This isn't something you're going to sit back and just kind of, oh, well, I guess I have hope now. It just kind of happened to me one afternoon. It's something that we have to engage in. It's something we have to wrestle with. So let me ask you a few questions. Do you ever feel an impulse against watching television that you have to resist? Or do you ever have an impulse against reading the Bible that you have to resist? Do you ever feel an impulse against playing a video game that you have to resist? Or do you ever feel an impulse against praying that you have to resist? Do you ever feel an impulse against going out to eat that you have to resist? Or do you feel an impulse against going to worship that you have to resist? Now, the picture I'm trying to paint there is not those are bad things and these are good things. Those are fine things. But the point I'm trying to make is it's easier to turn on the television. It's easier to scroll through Facebook for an hour and a half. It's easier to go, go do these things. 
what we have, what God is calling us to do is called the spiritual discipline. We have to be intentional about these things. If we're not intentional, the things that are easier is where we'll slide to. That's not preparing your mind for action. That's not being sober-minded. That's filling your brains with things that you don't necessarily need. Now, all of those things can be fine forms of entertainment. There's nothing wrong with doing those things. But you just have to make sure that you keep them in the right order. Keep the perspective on this. What am I going to do this morning? Uh, I feel like scrolling through Facebook for the next hour and a half, but you know what I'm going to do first? Pull out my Bible and read. That's why I've been stressing since the beginning of the year, the Bible reading program. Those, those different ones that we put out there, you get a check mark on the day. You know if you did it. And you have to fight. I'm preaching to myself at this point, by the way. I have to fight to put that away and do the Bible study first because it's easier to just fiddle away the hours. You must be intentional about it. You've got to hoist up those skirts, tie them around your waist, and prepare your mind for action. You must be set on doing it. You've got to be intentional about doing it. Be sober-minded. Have a plan for doing it. Engage in these things. Don't let other things fog your brain. One of the great dangers is you will believe what you listen to the most of. You will believe it. I have a friend I was talking to. They, they, they have a friend who does nothing but watch television news all day. This is the most miserable person they know. They are so upset about everything. In, in China, they're doing this thing, and it's like, does that really affect you? You can't, you can't do anything about it. It's, it's wrong. You should pray against it, but you shouldn't let it consume your mind. What you listen to the most, you will believe, and you'll see it as most important. So this is preparing your mind for action and being sober-minded. Fill your brain first with what we're supposed to have. Why? Because we are command. The command in this is set your hope. That's a command. That's not something that passively happens to you. You don't just sit back and go, oh, hey, today I'm hoping it is. I am going to train my brain to focus on this thing. I'm going to set my hope on this. So what do we mean by hope? Now, when we use it in general terms, like, you know, just ca casual conversation, it's, well, it's highly unlikely, but it would be nice if it happened. So early in the football season, if you'd gone to the Detroit Lions and said, look, Coach Campbell, you guys are 0-4. Do you think you're going to make it to the Super Bowl? He would not have said, are you kidding? There's no way that's going to happen. What he would say is, well, it's looking rough, but I hope so. In other words, probably ain't going to happen, but, you know, that's not what the Bible means by hope. What the Bible means by hope is there's something I'm sure of in the future that I don't currently have, but I know it's coming. And I get that from he, uh, Romans 8, 24 and 25. For in this we hope, uh, for in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he has? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Paul is saying here, our hope is fixed on something that we absolutely are sure of that is 100% coming, but we can't see it yet. So that's why Paul or Peter here is telling us, set your hope. Fix yourself. You have to prepare your brain. You get your mind organized, get everything set, pour scripture into your brain, pray for others, read good Christian books, in addition to all the other things you do. Set your brain first. Because if you set your brain, then you can fix your hope on what you know to be true, what you can be assured is coming. You must curate your thoughts and your attention. We have to do it. And, and it, with the advent of internet always on and social media, it's so hard to do. 
but you must curate your thoughts and your attention. What are we supposed to set our hope fully on? The rest of the verse. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Where are we supposed to hope in? We're looking to Jesus' return. We are looking to the fact that Jesus is coming back. So whatever your eschatology is or isn't, we should all have this one thing that we all agree on. Jesus is coming back, and that's great news. This is going to be wonderful. That's what my hope is on. Politics rages and it wanes. Uh, nations rise and fall. Empires come and go. Doesn't matter. My hope is not fixed on that empire. My hope is fixed on Jesus Christ. And he's coming back with a kingdom that will never end. That's great news. That's hope. That's hope building. So it's, it's this grace that's coming. Fix your hope on grace. And grace is God's unearned love for us. We didn't do anything to deserve it. And that fits with exactly what Peter had been saying at the beginning. We are elect exiles. God foreknew us. He had chosen us beforehand. He fixed his love on us, not because we were good enough, because we weren't good enough. And so he says, fix your hope fully on the grace, on God's love, undeserved, unearned, that's fixed on you. Fix your hope on that. That will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So there is a grace that we have now, and there is a grace that is to be revealed. So Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, Paul says, For the grace of God has appeared. It's here, right? It's appeared. Bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There is a grace that has appeared, and it's teaching us to wait for Jesus' appearance. And he goes on, who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify, us, purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So God's grace has appeared, and yet we fix our hope on the grace that will appear. In other words, God has intruded into history and began to unfold the return of Jesus Christ. We have the grace. The grace has come. It, it's rooted in the Great Commission. God is teaching all people to trust him. He is sending the message out to the ends of the earth. This is the eschatological hope that we have. And we look forward to the day when Jesus returns and our grace, we will see the grace before us. What will happen in that moment? Well, Jesus is going to return. And one of the things that is going to happen in his return is he's going to judge people, including believers. We will appear before God's judgment seat, bare naked before him. Everything we've ever thought everything we've ever done, everything we ever believed, everything we ever hoped, all of it laid bare before him. No excuses, no pardoning, no, no yeah buts, and we're going to be scrambling for fig leaves. And yet, when the judgment comes down, God is going to say, how do you plead to all of this? And our answer is justified because of Jesus' righteousness. Because Jesus died for me. He took the guilt of all of this garbage you see in front of me. He took the guilt for that. And he has justified me. I am claiming his righteousness, not my own garbage on the floor. And God will lower the hammer and say, justified. Not just innocent. 
You're actively righteous. Welcome to my kingdom. That is the grace of Jesus Christ that will be revealed when Jesus Christ returns. That's the grace that we have. That's why Protestants insist we are justified by faith alone. You can't come before God with this pile of garbage and go, yeah, but look at this. I did this thing. Yeah, what about all of this? We are justified only because Jesus, what Jesus has done for us. So fix your hope. Set your hope on the grace, not the works, the grace that is to be revealed when Jesus comes back. That's our hope. That's what we're waiting for. So I want to make sure we get that straight because what Peter does next is he's now going to tell us to behave. But we have to remember our behavior is not our justification. Our behavior is not our salvation. It's because of those things. So verse 14, he goes on and he says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. As obedient children, we have been adopted. We were once children of wrath, Ephesians 2.3. We are no longer children of wrath like the rest. We are now obedient children. That's, that's the movement that God has made for us. So as obedient children, as God's children adopted and brought into his family, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Isn't that something? It's the passions of your ignorance. We, we tend to err and think it's either I got to get the doctrine straight or I have the heart in the right place. And what Peter has just done is said, the passions come from your former ignorance. Because you didn't think about God right previously, now that you're an adopted child, now that you're brought in, make sure those passions don't come creeping back. It resolves in the heart. It starts in the brain. How we think, how we process, how we understand these things will influence our heart. That's why we fix our hope on Jesus. That's why we, we want to be not conformed to the previous passions. Is I've said it before, Augustine taught we are essentially lovers. That's what the human being primarily is, is a big heart, not a brain on a stick. So Peter is saying the same thing. As obedient children, do not be conformed to those passions. Do you see why you have to hoist up your skirt, how you, why you have to be sober-minded? You have lived in this pattern beforehand. You've had these passions, these desires drawing you that way. War against them. This is Captain Etherington warning you that something's going on. There's an enemy that's trying to sneak in the gate. Don't blow it off. Be prepared. So unlike Captain Etherington, who left the gate open and the guards at ease, we've been warned. There's an enemy trying to get in. It's the passions of your former ignorance. Be prepared. Be ready. In your mind, get fixed on these things. So don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. That's the danger. That's, what's, that's where we could lapse right back into. So you've got to want this. You've got to not only think it, you also got to want it. Your passions are what your desires, what draws you, what, what stirs you, your emotional responses to things. Be aware of them. Just because you feel it doesn't mean it's true. Just because you think it doesn't mean it's right. Where do we get our standard for truth and right? The scriptures. What the Bible says is what's true, no matter how you feel at the moment or what you think. 
So you may feel justified in this one little sin, or you may feel devastated, destroyed by this one little sin. Fix your hope on the grace that is to be revealed at Jesus Christ. Now, live as obedient children. That's, That's where he goes with this. So he says in verse 15, but he who called you is holy. You also be holy in all your conduct. You have been adopted into God's family. God, as we sang this morning, is is ultimately holy, perfectly holy, totally holy. That's the family you've been brought into. Behave like your family. That's what we're called to be like. He who called you is holy. He didn't call you to unholiness because he's holy. He's called you to holiness. So what does holiness mean? Well, holiness is hard. It's harder to define than it is explain or, or illustrate. God is holy. That, that is essentially who he is. Now, another thing that, that 1 John tells us is God is love. But more often than not, the, the word that describes God in his essence is holy. And that's why angels in heaven scream it over and over and over again. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God who was and is and is to come. So God's really defining characteristics is holiness. And the best we can get as we try to wrap human words around this is he's utterly other. He's not like creation. Dan mentioned the Greek gods, and one of the Greek gods just could never get things right, and so you would appeal to him because, hey, you know what it's like. Did I I paraphrase that correctly? Yeah, so um, that's not our God. Our God is utterly other. He is utterly different. He is holy is the best way to explain it. So he is, he is not subject to the frailties and the limitations and the, the sin that we are. He is holy. And so what he says here is, he who called you is holy, so you be holy in all of your conduct. Act like your father. Now, we will never be as holy as God. It, it just isn't possible. But holiness is where Peter is wanting us to go. Train your mind for action. Beware of your passions. Act as obedient children and be holy as your father is holy. So in the end, he quotes Leviticus. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. God is holy. He is utterly other. But notice he's not utterly other as in distant and removed and not engaged. The incarnation undoes that idea. The the, the incarnation ruins an idea of a deistic God who's, who's so aloof and so far away from humanity that he has nothing to do with us. He's imminent. He's right here. He's holy. And yet, he sends rain on the just and the unjust because he knows who's just and who's unjust, and he sends rain anyway. So he's intimately involved. We understand metrology and and how clouds work and everything, and yet, it's God who sends that. It's God who causes that to work that way. And he's holy. He's utterly other. He sets up rulers and he brings them down. Daniel told us that Nebuchadnezzar learned it the hard way. He's engaged in human politics, and yet he is utterly other. So this morning, listen to our Apostle Peter. Be holy as God is holy. Be engaged in these things. Be aware of the world around us, but this is what it means to be an elect sojourner. We're not caught up in them. We're not part of this thing. We're engaged in it, and we're in the middle of it. And so we Don't put our hope in anything that's going to fade and break and and wear down. Our hope is in the grace that that will be revealed when Jesus Christ comes. So that's what it means to be holy as God is holy. 
it, it would be nice if it was be holy and therefore you know go build a compound out in the desert and never talk to anybody. The, the problem with that is you bring sin with you because you're there. <laughs> so that's not the answer to holiness. The answer to holiness is engage your brain. Get ready for action. Prepare for the fight. Know the fight is coming. Be ready for it. Be sober-minded. Be intentional. And watch. But never take your eyes off the grace that will be ours. The danger is we could look at ourselves and go, I had a good week. I was pretty good this week. I didn't really mess up too much. That's, that's excellent. Don't take your eyes off, off of God and put them on yourself. It's dangerous to succeed. It's dangerous to, failure, to fail. Keep your eyes on, on the Lord Jesus Christ. And be holy, for he is holy. That, that's our call. That's what it means to be a sojourner, an elect sojourner in this world. Let's pray. Lord, um, because we have been born again by the Holy Spirit, because we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit, because the heart of stone has been removed and replaced with the heart of flesh, because your Holy Spirit has written your law on our hearts, we desire to do what is right. Lord, you have, you have taken us from the passions of our ignorance and made us adopted, obedient children. And so, Lord, we wrestle. We wrestle because the passion still will come back because though our hearts are made new, our bodies still continue in the same pattern. And Lord, we want to please you. We want to be like you. We want to be like Jesus. And we're so grateful that we have the promise that when we see him, we will be like him. That the grace that he brings us will be fully revealed when he comes. And so Lord, would you plant our hope in that? And I pray that our hope then would lead us to action, that, that in all of our conduct, we would be holy because we're hoping for what will happen when Jesus returns. And Lord, for your church in America, for all the believers across, across our nation whose hope has been distorted, whose hope has been stolen from them, whose hope has been diluted by chronic 24-hour news channels, by talking heads who, who have to say something this week. Lord, I pray that your, your church would experience revival. Holy Spirit, would you come in power, revive our hearts, help us to do what Peter has just told us, fix our hope on the grace that will be revealed when Jesus comes. And Lord, renew your church in America, we ask. We pray these things asking, Lord, would you start here with us today? Start with me. I need a revival in my heart. And Lord, spread that across our nation. We ask these things in Christ's precious name. Amen.